I'm Brendan Kearney, and you're listening to the Belgian Smack Podcast, where we explore the world of Belgian beer. When Brauerei Alvina started in 2003, Glenn Castellane and Davy Spaisens were contracting traditional ales and homebrewing classic styles. They worked at beer cafes and they volunteered with the Objective Bierproevers, OBP, the forerunners to the Zethos Beer Consumers Group in Belgium. Two things happened that would change the direction in which they would go. First, in 2005, a tour operator from England who brought beer enthusiasts all over Belgium asked Alvina to brew a 10% ABV Belgian Imperial Stout. Alvina poured samples at Zitos Beer Festival that year, their first experimental beer, with four versions showcasing four different yeasts. The tour operator's group, in attendance at the festival, tasted the four versions and chose the one which still exists today. The tour operator was Chris Pollard, known affectionately as Podge, a man who with others wrote books about Lambic and about cafe culture in Belgium. Sadly, Podge passed away just this August, but his passion for Belgian beer and for Belgium will live on through all those people he inspired on his tours. His warmth and generosity will never be forgotten by the Belgian brewers he befriended and supported. The Podge Belgian Imperial Stout was a defining moment for Alvina, garnering attention from beer lovers and showing themselves that they could push it as brewers. The second thing which changed Alvina's trajectory was the bringing on board in 2009 of Mark de Cucalade, the partner Glenn refers to as the yeast whisperer. De Cucalade captured strains of wild yeast and bacteria from the environment around Auvergne in France and through selection and isolation, delivered what is now Alvina's house culture, a mixed strain of Saccharomyces and Lactobacillus, which they have named, quite dramatically, Morpheus. Fast forward to 2018, and Alvina are now known for their Flemish sour ales, fruit beers and barrel-age projects. Glenn Castellane is now in charge of barrel management at Brauerei Alvina, alongside his other job at a special needs school, where he has worked for 23 years, first as a teacher and now as a coordinator. We discuss Alvina's evolution, the introduction and management of the Morpheus house culture, the importance of branding and identity, and the overlapping qualities required to work in special needs education and mixed fermentation. Sit back, listen, and enjoy Glenn Castellane of Braure Alvina. Glenn. Good afternoon. Hello. Um, so thanks for chatting to me. No worries. Um, you're from Brauerei Alvina, which is a, a small brewery in West Flanders. You guys are based in Moon. Yes. So first tell me a little bit about the area where you're brewing and kind of that region of, of West Flanders. Oh, it's in the uh, bit in the far uh, corner of uh, West Flanders, really close to the language border, so really close to, to uh, Tournai uh, on the one side, but also very, very close to the French border. 
Uh, it's uh, not really a very touristical region, but uh, there's some walking, some cycling. Uh, brewery is along a canal, so it, it's a beautiful scenery. And you guys have been kind of Alvina since 2004, I think? Yeah, well, two, I think t- uh, 2003 to be exactly, but, uh, but that, that was as a contract brewer. So, yeah, uh, so where were, you, where were you brewing at that point? Uh, well, we, we started uh, as a home brewer, um, and then at a certain point, like so many others uh, in the past, we were like, it would be really, really cool to have our own beer uh, commercially available, go to a pub and drink your own beer. So we went to Brouwerij de Graal, did some contract brewing, and I think in 2003, uh, we launched our first beer, got uh, some press attention. Um, and that was actually the reason or, or the start to become our own brewery, because some people from taxes and excise saw those pictures with our homebrew equipment, which was like 200 liters. So for a homebrewer, it's quite big. We tried to convince them that, come on, man, you know, <laughs> we like to drink a bit. So <laughs> it didn't really help. So they said, no, it's too big. So uh, either uh, scale down or become a brewery. And we became a brewery. So it took us a couple of months to get a license, I think, end 2004, uh, December 2004. And you we were, you were brings from then on, on that 200-litre kit? Yeah, well, that was just in, in, in the back garden. We had, like, a wooden shed, uh, sort of a man cave thing, you know? Uh, and, and at that point, were you um, focusing on mixed fermentation or were you also no, making clean beers? No, no, not at all. Uh, at that point, we were making the most, you know, basic... Uh, Belgian-style beers, a blonde, uh, a brown ale, a triple, couldn't be more so classic. So quite, quite classic, quite traditional. Yeah, really, really classic, really traditional. And why did you start with that? Was it because you thought that there were beers you'd like to drink or that you hadn't learned much about sort of international scene at the time? The last thing. Uh, we, you know, I knew a bit about uh, Belgian beer. I used to work at uh, the Hopduvel uh, when it was still a pub in Ghent. So that's where I got in touch with special beer. I was a member of uh, OBP Zito, so knew a bit about beer. But the classic Belgian styles of beers, uh, remember it's 2003. I mean, the beer scene has changed in such a huge way. Uh, can't compare it anymore. Um, so yeah, we just didn't really knew better. I think the first sort of adventurous beer we made was uh, the Poch Imperial Stout. And again, this was because someone just asked us and said, oh, I'm traveling with a group of English people. Uh, would you like to make like an imperial stout for us? And, and so, well, we did four different yeasts. And then the group got to taste the beers and decide which yeast we should use. So, okay. And that was, uh, yeah. Uh, so, uh, so then at what point did you move towards um, kind of the more classic styles to, okay, we're going to try something a little bit different. We're going to try something a little bit more complex. We're going to move yeah. into focus on mixed fermentation. Well, it's been like a traject. So we started with the really traditional things. Uh, then we went for the Imperial Stout, more a Belgian style, not a, not a really thick uh, American uh, style Imperial Stouts like Streusel or the Molen we're making. Uh, we made quite some bitter beers, like Gaspar was, was quite a bitter beer. Melchior was then the first barley wine. Um, Mixed fermentation, we started when Mark joined uh, the brewery. Which was uh, 2009. That was about 2009, yeah. So Mark is uh, Mark de Kukelaire. Yes. And he uh, he's kind of your yeast and hygiene management guy. Yeah, he's the yeast whisperer, we call him. The yeast whisperer. So 
he did a degree in food science engineering and kind of introduced into Alvina what is something that has become kind of a part of your ethos, which is the Morpheus yeast. Yes, absolutely. So tell me about the genesis of Morpheus and what you think it brings to you and your beers. Well, um, Mark uh, sort of harvested, collected uh, what would become Morpheus least later in uh, the Auvergne in, in France when he was on holiday. Uh, and then he started um, isolating and, and, and started brewing small batches to see, okay, what works, what didn't work. And, and did you know him at the time he was doing this? Um, we knew him as... A friend, uh, he was in the same uh, beer society where I was uh, vice president of, uh, Bless Sotterham. So we knew him from there and from tastings. Uh, but I didn't really know at that point, I'm talking 2000, I think, seven, eight. I had no idea what he was doing with, with his homebrews. Uh, it was a bit later when he brought some bottles to uh, the proof solder. And then we, we started trying and... Um, yeah, when he entered uh, the brewery as a partner, he didn't only bring uh, some extra money, uh, but the yeast. And at that point, we had no idea that it would be so important for our brewery, that it would change the way we would brew and, and become like uh, our identity. So is he, is he kind of walking around like French forests, like taking samples off trees? Or what? how is he kind of... You, know, you should ask him, of course, but I think that, that's about, yeah, I think you just uh, swap from the bark of a tree, from flowers, from, uh, and then you have, yeah, quite a lot of different bacteria, then it's a matter of uh, selecting, isolating, uh, so well, it sounds easier than, it's, than it is, of course, um, yeah, and, and he almost gave up, uh, it, it, I think it took him like two, three years to, to get to what is now uh, the mother culture of, of Morpheus East. He still keeps the mother culture at home. We have it in like in labs uh, at university, but he keeps it at home. Uh, even I don't really know how he, he keeps it stabilized. I know his wife does, and uh, I know David does. So probably uh, maybe if someone dies, they will tell the story, uh, the secret to me. Yeah. But he still, uh, yeah, he uh, propagates it at home when he has five liters brings it to the brewery and then we keep on feeding it until we have like 200 liters to uh, start up a brew. And you have, um, I guess, you, you've done some sort of um, uh, analytics on it and found out that it, it contains a couple of different Saccharomyces strains yeah, two, as well as a lactobacillus. Yeah, two Saccharomyces strains, one uh, lacto strain. So how did this kind of um, French Auvergne mixed firm culture, I guess, become Morpheus? What was the, 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 the genesis of the name? He just chose that. Uh, he chose that 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 name when uh, when he was still homebrewing. So yeah, I, I, I don't. I never asked him what what the specific genesis was, but I think he thought it was cool. Uh, God of what is it? Dreams and uh, so. Yeah. Um, so how would you describe the um, the character of Morpheus? Like what? Uh, how what does it give you in fermentation? What does it deliver in a beer? And what are the challenges in working with it? It's a lot of questions in one. Um, I describe it as, uh, well, obviously it's mixed fermentation. So obviously uh, most beers will get sour when you use it. Although we do use it in our traditional, not in all of them, but in most of our traditional ales as well. Uh, the, the strain is uh, non-hop resistant, which means that if we use enough hops, 
uh, the lactose will not multiply. So when they not multiply, it won't get sour, obviously. Um, I think it's uh, it, it gives really fruity esters to our beers. I think that this is what is uh, so characteristic and and is different from the kettle sours you taste. Um, so are you getting more kind of citrusy orange yeah. lemon or more banana apricot? No, it, it depends on the, on on the, the work of our beer. Yeah. Uh, we discovered that with low ABV beers, let's say Berliner Rise or Chain Reaction, which, which are like 3.5 for, uh, for ABV, uh, that we get a really citrusy, almost lemon flavor. Basically, a quite a sharp uh, sourness. I think our lowest ABV beers are the hardest to drink due to that sharp citric sourness. Although when you add some fruits, uh, it mellows down. And, and that's why I think Berliner uh, Raspberry is one of our most popular beers. Um, when we go to like 6 ABV, you get more of that almost ciderish uh, apple flavors, esters. When you go 8 and above, it's, it's peach. Like really ripe fruit, peaches. Yeah. Uh, which I love. I, think I, pr I prefer the higher ABV, not for the ABV, but for the fruity esters. And I think... In my opinion, these are the best beers for, for our fruit experiments. So most of our uh, more exclusive fruits uh, or the ones that we need to do a lot of work on, we'll put on uh, on Phi, which is the Blonde's 8 ABV Sour. Yeah. And another kind of, um, uh, I suppose, characteristic of the Morpheus is that it seems to be quite tolerant to alcohol. So yeah. you can produce quite high alcohol beers Absolutely. without too much of a you know problem with fermentation. Yeah. So how far are you going up in, in, in with the Morpheus? Well, I think we can, well, we can go up to 13 and we go up to 16 sometimes with uh, the Cuvée de Martagne PX. But uh, for that beer, we need to do sort of a special procedure where when the beer is almost fermented out, we take small amounts uh, and we keep on adding fresh yeast and sugar and then we keep on fermenting smaller amounts until bit by bit the alcohol uh, goes up. The main thing to um, to have that alcohol tolerance is that the yeast is really viable. Uh, it doesn't always work. Sometimes it's a bit harder uh, and it's, it has all to do with viability of the yeast. So how we feed the yeast, uh, does it have uh, enough minerals? Um, and what about um, temperature of fermentation for like primary fermentation? It's quite high. Yeah. So, I mean, normally, um, you know, you, you're in the low 20s for some sort of the cleaner mm -hmm. or even below that for some of the cleaner, like um, yeah. American ales, a little bit higher, maybe for an English ale you strain. A lot of the Belgian ones will take you up to 20, 30 degrees Celsius. Where are you going for oh, Morpheus? Yeah, up to 35. And that is, that's, um, that's not too warm for, for your yeast? Not for the lactose. I mean, if you want to make yogurt, it's not going to work uh, if you do it at 25 degrees. So, uh, so you're, you're, you're cooling less when you're pitching the wort into your tank and when you're pitching yeah, the yeast? Yeah, we start high and then after a couple of days, so, so uh, lactose multiply really quickly and then we drop temperature so uh, beer yeast can finalize the fermentation. But if all goes well, fermentation is done in three, four days. Okay, so you have you have um, uh, it's Mark the yeast mm -hmm. whisperer. You have um, yourself who uh, you're kind of responsible more for barrel management and also you know PR and stuff like yeah, that. A lot of things, yeah. And then Davy, 
Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, are you friends, or did you come across Davy Street Beer, or how, what's your relationship uh, like for starting? Well, Davy is uh, my brother-in-law, so that's a family relationship. And then Mark, like I told you, uh, was a friend uh, of the brewery, and well, at certain moments uh, we needed a new partner, and we started talking, and he was like, "Hey." That's so, so like Davy is kind of in, in, in sort of head brewer, head production, doing more of the logistical and yeah, administrative stuff. Yeah, he's like the head of the brewery. Uh, of course, with with growing as a business, uh, both Davy and I, who were in production first, uh, shifted more to the office, like in so many brewers, and then you pay someone to do uh, to do production. Um, um, so your role includes barrel management. Yes. Planning, do most of the planning now, uh, seeing which beer needs to be brewed, uh, what we would bottle, depending on uh, orders we get, uh, especially for the barrels. And are you are you sort of have a range of beers which are um, uh, sort of bottled straight from tank, and then a range of beers that you're putting in barrels? Yes. So tell me about sort of how you're. Um, conceiving the projects with the barrels, where you're sourcing them, and kind of the the challenges in working with with the barrels. Well, the challenges is uh, to um, to get really good barrels at an affordable price. I think that's that's uh, the biggest challenge. How many do you have? I think at this point about one twenty. We used to have a bit more. Uh, but barrel aging is uh, is an expensive thing to do. Uh, there's a lot of money just laying there. And running your business in a good way means that you need to be careful on cash flow. And uh, so at a certain point, we had a little bit too many barrels, uh, weren't able to bottle them in, in time. So we saw, oh shit, some barrels are getting like one and a half years old and we could have bottled them like two months or three months ago. Uh, so at that point, it's time to slow down a bit. Uh, that's also managing uh, when you see maybe a bit of an overproduction. Um, so yeah, getting great barrels is probably the, the biggest uh, challenge. But I have a really good network that I built up in the in the past years. So, uh, And is it a case of kind of using barrels as a further fermentation vessel or using them for the, the, the sort of the qualities of, of the liquid that was in them before? Uh, like what are you doing a kind of a mix of all types of things? It's a bit of a mix. Um, in the smaller wine barrels or wine, cognac, uh, sauterne, uh, what else do we have? Uh, port, Calvados. That's for whatever was in it, uh, especially first time use. Uh, some of the barrels we use up to three times, like wine barrels. When we put it, a beer in for a third time, it's not going to give much anymore. It's going to give a little bit. Uh, but then it's already more like yeah, uh, fermentation sort of thing. And then we have the fooders, the, the bigger ones. Uh, these are basically for yeah, storage and fermentation. And it's those beers that we will use for our fruit projects. So in the beginning, we had to empty uh, the barriques, like, like the 220 liter barrels, which is a lot of work if you, you, know, if you need uh, 2,000 liters of beer to put on, on the rhubarb or whatever. And you need to empty 10 small uh, barrels. It doesn't make any sense. With the fooders we have now, we just empty pretty much a complete fooder. We leave a little bit in. Uh, we make sure we have fresh beer available. Beers go on the fresh fruit or frozen fruit. We fill the fooder up again. And four months later, when it's finished, four to six months later, 
we do it all over again. So the beer stays in there for like six months, but there's always, or pretty much always, a little bit that has been in there. Uh, and you're time. using what's left in to further inoculate? Yeah, it. to further inoculate a little bit. Uh, but sometimes we completely uh, empty it. Uh, from time to time we clean it. Not every time we empty it, but like in a cycle of one and a half, two years, we're going to do one thorough and, and cleaning. What, um, what fruits are you uh, using? And Because um, I think you've, you've kind of been quite experimental at times mm-hmm. with use of fruits that maybe yes. are less common in beer yeah. or that are maybe more difficult to, to get your hands on. Yeah. So kind of what, what sort of things have you done recently that you're excited about? Uh, exciting things. Uh, I think the most exciting thing is the, the smoked uh, peaches or smoked pineapple. Um, we do it on the Surya de Mortagne, which is sort of a sour quad. So you have uh, a sweet, sour uh, 10 ABV beer, which is already quite peachy uh, as a base beer. And then we thought, oh, maybe we should do a smoked sour, but I didn't want to do the, the obvious thing and, and use smoked malts. Uh, I think smoked malts are a little bit too meaty in a way. So I wanted more of those fruity, smoky flavors. Uh, and Davy has this smoker so we thought hey why not try it with uh, peaches so we just open peaches 70 75 degrees tried a couple of uh, different uh, woods to smoke on because that also will has an impact influence um, your flavor so we prefer uh, apple tree cherry tree uh, hickory is, is nice oak is nah. with oak we get again that meaty uh, smoky flavors but I think that's that's a really interesting one. Uh, another interesting one is with the cloudberries because they are so hard to find. Um, you you need to go to Sweden, Norway, or, or Canada to to get your hands on it. And even if I talk to Swedish people and or Norwegians and I say, "Well, we got our hands on 230 kilos of cloudberries," they're like, "What? They're they're so expensive. How how did you do that?" It's a network again. It's yeah, uh, helping out uh, a Swedish brewery doing Belgian-style beers. Uh, went there, uh, made a saison with them. It's now their flagship beer. And when they came over, we were like, well, we're going to do a sour. We're going to use one of our sours, but bring something you know we can't get our hands on. So the first time they just came uh, with two suitcases with 15 kilos of uh, frozen uh, cloudberries. And it was so good that we said, okay, we need to do more. And yeah. I did sort of a crowdsourcing thing. Yeah. So uh, th- is this the um, Alvina Fellowship of Exceptional Eels? Or is that something else? That's something else. The Alvina Fellowship of Exceptional Eels is uh, sort you could call it sort of a bottle membership, but it's also a pre-sale. And that's a recent thing, right? It's a recent thing, yeah. Uh, it's for those beers that we usually have max 500 bottles of. Um, or really exclusive experiments we try. Problem is with, with like, like let's say, Cuvée Sophie's Harbeck Secret. That was one that was in a regular uh, portfolio, uh, but it's, yeah, our customers, they really want it. Our importers, they want it. But I only have 30 cases of beer. So if I give 10 cases to someone, he's going to be mad because he wants 15 or he wants 20. If I want to give five that one wants 10 if I uh, say to, to a customer well you can't get it he's mad because he's like well if I can't get your special beers I don't need your beer anymore so those beers where we have to do a lot of effort where I have to go forage the, the cherries myself takes a lot of time takes a lot of uh, 
well, passion and energy, and it's, it's fantastic beer, but can't make anyone happy. And that's why we thought, okay, we need to do this in a different in way. A different way. Um, and we came up with a fellowship, which basically means that people pay 100 euros. They will get three liters of beer, um, but they just don't know what beers it will be. Although we do, you know, in the next couple of months, uh, we will tell them what we are, are doing, which experiments uh, we are doing. Um, I don't promise them that, like the Schaarbeese Creek is going to be, I don't say it's going to be a 75 centiliter because if there's not much cherries on, might just be a 33. If there are a lot on, maybe two 33s, maybe half liter. So yeah, so you don't they, really know. They, they, they just have to be patient. Yeah, they have to be patient. It's, it's going to be a bit of a, a mystery in a way, but they do know that those beers uh, normally will not be available in the regular uh, yeah, shops or whatever, uh, or bars. Um, and um, I mean, you also uh, recently went through a kind of a bit of a yeah a brand change mm-hmm. or to kind of rejig the brand, both sort of how how it looks um, uh, visually as well as some of the, the the text and things that you're using. So I think you're saying uh, as your identity, I guess, Flemish sour eels and more. Yeah. So you're you're kind of really focusing on, and and you are based in a region which is quite well known traditionally for mixed fermentation. So you mm-hmm. have the, you know, Rodenbach, um, the Duchesse from Verhaga, you have the, the Brabende Petrus yes. uh, Brown, yeah. and you have the uh, Omer van Hinstel Brown. Yeah. And I mean, you're obviously a much smaller brewery um, and maybe the beers have a less commercial character in, in Alvina. Probably. <laughs> but I mean, do, do you have any relationship with those guys? Or I mean, or do you feel that you're contributing to the, 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 the kind of the the tradition of the beers of the region? Mm. I mean, do, would you consider yourself to have an old brown beer in your lineup, for example? Um, no, we used to have one, uh, the Fooder beer, but, but we stopped with this. Um, there's not really a relationship with those big uh, family breweries around us. I think if there's one uh, brewery where we have a relationship that is doing sort of similar beer, uh, or at least part of their portfolio, it's uh, Verzet. So they've got a really good relationship uh, with those guys. Um, But we decided that we wanted to be something like, um, you know, like you say, you have the mixed fermentation, uh, old brown regions, the big ones. And then if you go uh, in the direction of Brussels, uh, you have the Lambics. Well, if you draw a line, we are not really in the middle, but no, we are on that line in between those. Uh, so we decided, well, let's do beers that are sort of the missing link between the really traditional Flemish old brown beers and Lambic. You know, in the future, of course, I want to do a, a spontaneous fermentation beer, but maybe we won't do it because it's, again, out of our story. Yeah. I think we are very unique in what we do. There's well, you, you mentioned Verzel, and that's something they've also said to me. Is mm. you know, the Brussels guys can have their lambic, yeah. but Old Brown is ours. Yeah, and it's that's and the, for the, us it's like Flemish, yeah. you know? and, and for us it's like we call, we call it then the Flemish sours uh, uh, because we focus a lot on on um, yeah the blonde sours, Omega Five, uh, and then the OKs versions. I mean, there. your beers are your beers are quite different to the, as you said, the family brewers that are producing mm-hmm. Old Brown. I mean, what do you think of their products? Um, they're obviously, um, they're more sweet because they have um, a sweet sour balance with a, a pasteurization. Mm-hmm. Some of them have a little bit more acidic character than others. Um, you know, 
what's what's kind of your opinion on them and how are you guys doing it differently well I think you uh, you sort of gave the answer in, in, in your question um, we don't pasteurize we don't um, you know there's less control we we sort of let the beer live its own way um, the big guys yeah and I do understand I mean it's a comm- everyone is a commercial business but for them it's obviously it's different than, than what we do uh, they reach another public uh, our public is, is not uh, the traditional Flemish uh, beer drinker it's, it's an international beer lover uh, Are, would you consider some of your beers to be um, not accessible to the kind of the normal Belgian triple drinker Probably. Well, the thing is with, with Belgians, uh, they like their, you know, th- th- their customs. They're duvel drinkers or La Chouffe drinkers or and they, they're not really adventurous. They don't really want to try a lot of new stuff. Okay, there's a new generation of young people that are more into trying other things, but it's not a huge group of people. So yeah, the average Belgian beer drinker is like stuck to what he wants. Um, which makes it for us, of course, very difficult to convince those uh, people. But I don't think it should be our mission to convince those. I think uh, there's a totally different mission for us. Uh, it's to convince those people that say they don't like beer. Because most of those people, they don't like beer because they don't like bitter. If they like sours, it's, it's the people that drink white wine. It's the people that drink champagne or, or, or cava. Uh, all those uh, liquids have sort of an acidity, which is close to the acidity of uh, our sours. Well, so if, it, if you can convince them, uh, and that's maybe even harder, because, yeah, you start with beer and you have to convince, yeah, but it's beer, but it's, uh, basically it's not beer. Try it. And, and I mean, have you, you must have kind of come across some people who have tasted your beers, some of which are quite acidic, mm-hmm. some of which are very complex. They have, you know, very pronounced ester quality. Sometimes there's a like a tannic quality from from some of the ingredients that you've used, the wood or, or things. Like sometimes you're smoking fruit, you know. So there's a lot going on. And I mean, have you ever encountered reactions where it's like, what the hell is this? Uh, but are, are the people come to your beer mostly relatively educated that, that are they already know who you are? At beer festivals, I think most people know. Um, but we do other like smaller events. We did uh, like a reception for for an art thing, and and uh, because we knew the organizer, and he was like, "I don't want to do the classic uh, wine and, and and cava and champagne reception. I want to do a beer reception." And then you see those people like, "Yeah, but I don't like beer." Or, and we just served the the raspberry berliner in 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 a champagne glass. Say, yeah, we'll try a little bit. And they kept on coming. So that's why I mean, you need to try to convince people that in their heads just don't like beer. And there's a huge potential there. Um, I also think our beers are more suitable in in restaurants uh, to serve in smaller amounts, uh, food pairing, yeah, than in just the pub, uh, the village pub. And you mentioned that you have this kind of um, international audience. Mm-hmm. Um, what are the countries that you're exporting most to and who are the countries that seem to be more fans of Alvina? 
I think um, I was surprised uh, in in April. I took uh, the time to when I check on tapped ratings, and so people can can put uh, where they had it. So there's a venue mentioning. So I thought, hey, what if I put every venue on a Google map? It gives me any because I never have an idea where where people drink our beer. You know, we we sell it to wholesalers and porters, and from there it goes away. And to my biggest surprise, the two cities in the world with the most venues where you could drink Alvina beers were Moscow and St. Petersburg. Russia. Russia. Um, Scandinavia is doing really well. Sweden is doing really well. Uh, the Netherlands is, is really booming now. It's really, really booming. Uh, a country that uh, has gone really down is the US. Uh, and is that because there are like-minded people producing high-quality mixed fermentation beers and therefore the need to get something from Belgium is less? Or is it because, yeah, what, what, what's the reason, you think? Um, I think uh, in some countries it's easier to introduce beers like we brew because the... The average beer drinker is just more adventurous. There's, it's, it's those countries where there's not really a beer culture. Uh, I mean, in the Netherlands, there was a culture of Pilsner, but uh, people from the Netherlands are very adventurous. They want to try everything. Uh, so it's for us, it's really much easier to, to build up a fan base, sort of say, uh, in, in Amsterdam and, and the surroundings than in Kortrijk or in Bruges or Ghent. Um, so yeah, I think I think that's the main reason. Russia the same. I mean, they drink. You know, they they're gonna drink the Scandinavian uh, sours. They're gonna drink the American sours. So we are one of those. Uh, but being Belgium still gives a little bit heads up. Not much anymore, but a little, especially in the sour section. Well, well, yeah. I mean, looking at. A kind of Belgium. I think you're talking about like brand Belgium mm -hmm. or the cachet of being Belgian brewery. Um, have you have you been to the states once? Yeah. yeah. And did you, was was it recently or uh, I think two or three years ago, something like that. And did you did you have any impressions of how beer was moving in the states? Um, like just the beer culture and what what, what we saw um, was that yeah, everything is was growing. Extremely fast, but really extremely fast. Everyone was 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 on sours. Everyone was on. Have you buckets. tasted some of the stuff that they yeah, make? Of course, yeah. And do you think the the quality is good, or is it? I mean, it's, it's such are, a yeah, such a huge yeah, country. It's and such a huge. Uh, some are good. Uh, some some aren't. Uh, I think Cascade was was a good example of, of someone who's I think was really good. Uh, I'm a big fan of Jester King. Um, OEC Brewing, who's who's sort of connected with our US importer, was also doing really great things. Uh, although, although <laughs> maybe it's also because they use some of our beers in some of their blends. Uh, but uh, but yeah, I, I've had others as well. My impression was mainly that um, due to the the fast grow and and what what everyone was doing that it would be difficult and, and my prediction came out uh, this year that we would have a difficult time because there's there's going to be way too much of sours, way too much of barrel-aged beers on the market. Prices will drop. Uh, if, if you have to import Belgian beer to the States, it's going to be too expensive. So if you're not Conti or Trifontaine and 
it's going to go down, um, which happens not only for us, for, for a lot of brewers. And let's see, maybe it will pick up again. Uh, yeah, I mean... If, 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 yeah, and if it picks up again, it's, it's going to be because we've established a name and a reputation. Yeah, I mean, you, you said it moves quite quickly in the States and you, you mentioned as well before that, you know, since you started on your 200-litre kit having discussions with the Belgian excise, mm. you know, that was a different time in Belgian beer. And, you know, you've gone on since to a new production space in 2011. The, the team has changed a little bit. Do you see now Belgian beer moving fast? Do you think there's much change happening? I mean, what's your kind of impression on the, the state of affairs here in Belgium? Um, that's a difficult question in, in a way. Um, it's not moving fast in Belgium. Uh, some might think so because, okay, there's brewers. There's always brewers uh, or new brewers starting up. But compared to other countries, I wouldn't say it's 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 growing fast. Are you talking about now what what the consumer wants? Yeah, and 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 just the number of breweries starting up. Uh, but like I said, what, what's happened in the US uh, is going to happen in Europe uh, as well. There are too many brewers doing craft beer, and the number of people drinking it is growing, but not by far fast enough. So I, I fear a bit for, for craft beer in general that it's sort of an air bubble uh, which is about to burst. And and in, in Belgium, let's just, let's just run mm-hmm. through your theory. Mm-hmm. The bubble bursts. Mm-hmm. What happens then? Is it, is it then Belgium reverts to its kind of bigger, more traditional breweries that kind of sur- survive in, in the beer market? Or, you know, how does that play out? I think the, the well the bigger ones with a stabilized market uh, surely will will continue to do what they do. Uh, a lot of the smaller ones will disappear. Uh, I think it's going to be about yeah having an identity, having a reputation, uh, and having good beers. Quality will quality will always uh, survive. Um, but it's, it's going to take more than quality. And then maybe that's one of the reasons why we also, because in 15 years we've never been focused on branding or on, on labels or whatever. We just, you know, we did our thing. And when you looked at uh, in our brewery at all our different beers, it looks like there were 10, 15 different breweries uh, in the shop. So yeah. we knew that, okay, we need to... Uh, our faces aren't enough anymore. There was, a, there was a story I heard about one of the labels that was um, uh, someone just drew something as a draft and sent it through. And one of you guys said, oh, what did you think of the draft I sent through? And then the other one said, oh, what do you mean? I already sent it to the printer. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, well, it's got to be Dave. Yeah, I suppose so. yeah, things like that happen. Yeah. I mean, um, but yeah, it's part of... of uh, I mean, yeah, I think we are in, 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 at a certain time in, in, in the project we are doing that we need to be professional uh, or more professional than we were before. And a bit of marketing is, is a necessity. It's not our thing. Um, but then you get people who are more experienced with it. And um, and I think it will help. It's already helping. We see it. We get a lot of comments on uh, the rebranding of the logo. People like it. Uh, the labels. They, uh, it's not the most fancy labels. It's not the most, you know, it's not with skulls or uh, it's not a, it's not art or what you see in some, some labels. But it's recognizable. And then that's, that's what's the most important thing for us. It should be recognizable. It should be like, okay, 
Al vinden, sour beers. You go to a shop, you recognize it. Uh, like I said, more than just our faces. And of course, Al vinden is not your only job. No, no. So you also work in um, like special needs education? Yes. So did you used to be a teacher? Yes, I've uh, been working at the same school, uh, special education school for I think 23 years now. Uh, first as a teacher and then the last five years uh, I took up more like coordination jobs, coordinating internships, uh, managing smart school, things like that. And um, is it sort of a, a broad range of kind of needs of the, the children that are in the school or is it one specific? No, it's it's uh, really broad. It's from children that will never be able to live uh, on their own, so that will have to go to like daycare centers, children that will uh, have to go to uh, social uh, employment and others, the ones I work with uh, mainly, or actually students that will end up in, in the regular um, uh, regular work uh, things. And are we talking things like sort of um, autism and so other conditions that are similar, behavioral stuff, or, or what's what sort of... We've got pretty much got everything in our school. Yeah. So, yeah, we do have some uh, students with autism. Uh, we are one of those schools who are... Um, recognized by governments to yeah, to educate uh, and work with uh, those uh, those children we've got more and more uh, behavioral problems uh, and that that must be challenging you know in terms of both in the classroom teaching and just the management of the school to make sure that those children get what they need to get it is challenging uh, it's, it certainly is challenging but then again um, I think uh, it's very important to have a, a good group of uh, teachers you're not doing this on your own but it seems also to be a job that requires a caring personality yeah. and that you have to really you know be passionate about what you're yeah. doing passion and, and, and patience <laughs> uh, no if, if you know but you, you, get you, a lot you, wouldn't, you wouldn't survive 15 years or 20 years in, in special education if it's not for you you need to be sort of a caring person. Uh, but you, you obviously get some sort of a job satisfaction from, you know, working in that environment. Absolutely. Yeah, otherwise, uh, probably would work maybe full time in the brewery. So um, I like, I work a lot. Uh, and for me, having those two jobs uh, helps in a way. You know, if, if one is sometimes a little bit too much, got something else to focus on and they're so different and yeah and they're so completely different well, not always i mean <laughs> if you're if you're serving at a beer festival and it's like the last hour and you have some people like oh, that you want to get rid of then my skills as a special ed teacher sometimes uh, <laughs> your patience uh, oh yeah my patience helps I've, I've been able to get people uh, sometimes out of a uh, a festival that are so drunk and, 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 and getting violent just by techniques I use in school. So yeah, well, that, that's that's obviously something you have a lot of job satisfaction mm. for. My last question is: in Brauerei Alvina, in the world of brewing and mixed fermentation, um, do you love what you do there? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean. I can play with the barrels. I'm the one foraging. The rest would would go bananas if they have to do that. For me, it's like a relaxing thing. It's like someone else is doing yoga. Uh, I get nervous if, with all the 
so now let me go into the field for some slowberries. Uh, try to think of new things to use. It's 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 really fun. Excellent. Well, Glenn, thank you so much for talking to me, and uh, good luck for everything in the future. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. Now we can drink. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening, folks. If you want to hear more, why not subscribe to the podcast? And if you liked it, we'd love it if you left a review on iTunes. If there's someone you know you think would enjoy it, please do recommend it to them. And if you want to keep up with our stories, resources and projects on Belgian beer and Belgian chocolate, sign up for our email updates on belgiansmack.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. <laughs>